Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Matt McAllister. Matt runs a company called Intelligence Squared, and they specialize in staging public debates, both in person and online. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Bradley, my pleasure. Um, so real fast, I want to jump into Boris Johnson because you're, you're based in London and so much is happening right now. But just run us through kind of your career, especially as a journalist, and kind of ha- how did you get from there to here? Yeah, I mean, I was an intern at Newsday on Long Island um, and then was a local reporter and and then a foreign correspondent in the Middle East and various other places for Newsday. Um, But I'm British and so eventually ended up back here and um, and was an editor for a while and then made the jump into, I'm kind of editor-in-chief slash CEO of Intelligence Squared. Um, so I've learned how hopefully to sort of run a business in the meantime. <laughs> Good. Um, so, so explain to the listeners kind of what Intelligence Squared is, how you decided to do it and kind of how it works. Yeah, it was founded nearly 20 years ago by two brilliant entrepreneurs in London who had the notion to take Oxford style debating, which is quite structured, into the sort of public arena beyond campuses and beyond debating clubs and make it a sort of form of theatre in central London. And over the years, it's grown into, especially during the pandemic, when you didn't, our our entire business model was putting strangers sitting next to each other for two hours in enclosed spaces. Um, So we had to pivot probably more than anyone else in the pandemic. And actually, it accelerated our shift like so many into being a digital media company. And while we absolutely still do in person ticketed events and for partners, corporations, um, and, and, you know, much of it is digital or hybrid and podcasting is a huge part of it. We've got half a million subscribers on YouTube. So, you know, it's a, it's truly a digital company at this point. Is there still a tradition in London or the UK of going to a park and standing up on a soapbox and speaking, or has that been completely replaced by the internet? <laughs> I mean, like, there's Hyde Park Corner and people do that, yeah. but there's also Twitter. And I think you get a little yeah. bit larger audience yeah. on Twitter. So, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a funny little thing, but it's not, it's not. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was in London like a week ago and I passed Hyde Park Corner. That's what, right. that's what I was thinking about it. So, um, you know, Americans, as, as you know, pretty well, tend to not care that much about foreign policy or other yep. countries, especially if they're not a direct impact on us. Um, but, you know, some of the biggest political news in the world uh, just happened uh, in England with Boris Johnson resigning. So before I even get into more specific questions, just for our listeners who aren't even that focused on it at all, um, why did he have to resign? Yeah, but first of all, I'm just going to say, I agree with you, by the way, Bradley, that like actually Britain does not matter hugely. It still matters, but it really doesn't matter as much as a lot of British people think, um, having lived in the US for many, many years. He had to resign um, essentially because he told too many untruths and um, eventually they just accrued and there was a tipping point. It could have been one thing or another, um, but you could see it coming and and eventually it just became too much for his own party. And that's the crucial thing. It's really unlike um, in the Republican Party with Trump where, you know, that was never going to happen. This, this was a 
a sort of toppling from within and the British political system enables that to happen. And essentially, actually, what is similar is that, um, you know, members of Republican members of Congress, essentially, as far as I can tell from this distance, make their decisions based on their chances of being reelected and um, and therefore and Trump's role in that is pivotal. Well, Boris Johnson's role in that was pivotal here too, but what happened was that he became a liability. And so they're all looking, especially in marginal constituencies, looking at the future and getting very worried about their future employment. And, you know, they talked about integrity and not being able to serve in a government that had none, um, but actually it was a sort of employment issue as much as anything else for the members of parliament. Sure. So were there specific mistakes that Johnson could have avoided and he'd still be in office today? Or or is the reality of it, because he was such a sort of unique and in many ways ridiculous figure, this was going to happen and some set of scandals was going to take him down uh, and and it just there was no way out of that? Yeah, I mean, he's he's an amazing salesman. He's like the world's greatest salesman. Um, But he turned out to not be a manager. And when you have to manage an entire national government, um, he, you know, clearly didn't read briefs and took his eye on the ball. And this is someone who's like kind of preternaturally smart and erudite and, you know, talented. I mean, he's 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 extraordinarily smart and charming. But he what he loves is the sell. And he sold Brexit. He sold himself. He sold the Tory party and he sells you know, he sold policies and he's this, you know, default optimist and upbeat figure. But he, um, I think it's fair to say, feels that he can paper over the cracks of his management failures just by sort of fibbing about them. And, and you know, lying is a big word and lots of people have used it here. Um, so fair play, but um, it just it just became too much and that, that just wasn't sustainable. Yeah. And so um, ultimately, let's say Trump were the prime minister instead of Boris Johnson. Does he power through or do all the same factors of kind of a parliamentary system of government that ultimately made Johnson's party take him out? uh, Would that have applied to Trump, too? Trump would have powered through as far as far as I can tell. I mean, Johnson had one last kind of Trump like option which was to go to the Queen and request an election, um, which would have you know, put her in an impossible situation. She's just meant to make no decisions. I mean, she's officially the head of state, but she doesn't. <laughs> can, I, um, can, I quick, can I just jump in with the story there? So I was yeah. in a taxi in London. This was you know, a week or so ago. Yeah. And somehow the topic of the Queen came up and the driver was saying, oh, well, you know, when she's out and about, it's slow because there's so much security. And I said... Well, she doesn't really do anything, so why would anyone really want to kill her? And he got very offended and said, she runs the country. And is, is that a sentiment there, or was it just one random dude? That is that is so far from the truth. She does not run the country. She's she, you know, she's extraordinarily well admired, and she, you know, is is one might say the sort of anchor of identity for Britain and there's lots of gnashing of teeth about what comes next with King Charles um, and so on. But no, she has she essentially has no political power, in spite of what the Crown would lead you to believe uh, the Netflix show. Yeah, yeah. My wife has watched that a bunch. I haven't seen it. Um, what do you like? So given that you are, you know, pretty well versed in, in both the U.S. political system and the British, 
What do you like about a parliamentary system that you think could benefit us here? And, and what do you dislike about it? I mean, look, we, we, you know, the British Parliament were really the governing party got rid of its leader very, very swiftly. After, let's not forget, he won a massive landslide three years ago. And that's a degree of accountability that I don't think we saw during the Trump administration. On the other hand, you know, there is no British constitution and there's no 25th Amendment. So there is actually no cabinet mechanism for getting rid of uh, you know, a, 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 the leader, whether it's the prime minister or the president. So there are pluses and minuses to it. I do think that um, the, there's a sense in, I, I, it's super hard to say because I just think Trump pushed things so far that you know, five, six years ago, we wouldn't have been having this conversation and J J Boris Johnson, you know, who knows, maybe time would have told and he would have morphed into a more Trump-like figure. And he certainly learned a lot from Trump in terms of just just tell untruths and keep going um, and, and ignore the conventions. But I, you know, based on the three years that he had, there was no sense that he was moving quite in that direction, not a January 6th type situation. So the, the day that I got to London was the day that the uh, Dobbs decision was released um, in the U.S. A and you could see some impact of it in London. You know, people, there, there yeah. were some protests and all of that. What's the perception right now of the U.S. Uh, in the U.K.? I mean, the, the perception is that the Supreme Court is, a, is a, just a fundamentally domestic body, which it is, and, and what happens on abortion, gun rights, and contraception, gay marriage, etc., is, you know, maybe horrifying to your average Brit, but it feels a little distant. And I think that, um, you know, and I think that really what is super interesting is what we've seen ever since the decision not to bomb Assad in 2013 by President Obama, which which on the, the over chemical weapons and and like that really was the beginning of the U.S. stepping back from its sort of interventionist world policeman role, and that has had a huge impact on Britain because Britain was was riding at the side of that world policeman and and like you know that's no longer the case and that I think that has changed the entire global geopolitical situation vis-a-vis -vis China, certainly Russia, very obviously, but the Middle East is now no longer the United States playground. And these are, these are really significant things. And Ukraine has just, you know, you could, I'm interested actually, Bradley, what, whether you think Ukraine and the US-UK response to that will have sort of set the US back on a path towards being, I wouldn't say interventionist, but engaged overseas and after the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan and, and all of the other pullbacks? Yeah, it, it, it's a really good question, right? Because th there's two ways to look at it. Way one would be Americans don't care about, as we said earlier, foreign policy unless there's a direct impact mm. on them in some way. Um, you know, there's an indirect impact from the Ukraine in, in terms of the inflation and the cost of, of natural yep. gas and of oil and ultimately famine, especially in Africa because of the 
ex stopping of exporting wheat, right? That's so much of yeah. it's grown in, in, in the UK. So there's an indirect impact, but are, you know, for as long as American troops are not on the ground there, I, I don't know that um, Americans ever really care enough um, to change their political voting habits. However, it's funny, I'm, I'm right now in upstate New York, um, yeah. And strangely, there's like Ukrainian flags everywhere hmm. we go in sort of towns that clearly don't have you like Millbrook or a Cold Spring that clearly don't mm -hmm. have Ukrainian communities. And so I kind of wonder, is that because people really do feel kinship? Is it because they're white? Like, I don't quite know what it is, mm -hmm. but it, it seems like there's something there. But, you know, overall, um, of all of Trump's fucked up policies and behaviors, in some ways, his stances on foreign policy to me felt less crazy. I still didn't agree with a lot of them, but there was like, a, a, I felt like a legitimate basis for it, which is the world is not our problem, you know? Uh, and I think that attitude would still be popular politically in the US because we feel like we have so many problems here on our own soil. No one feels all that uh, indebted to take care of anyone else. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a partisan issue any longer, that question. It's, it's. I mean, it went from Bush Sr. to Clinton to Bush Jr. pretty effortlessly and just hit hit a wall in Iraq and Afghanistan. So anyway, sorry, I'm distracting you from, from the conversation. No, no, you're absolutely, that's, that's, Hugo had warned me this was going to happen, so uh, I'm prepared <laughs> for it. So... Um, you know, so we're seeing around the world this just sort of incredible unsettling unrest, right? So whether it was the assassination of Abe in Japan last week, um, Sri Lanka, people literally just storming the prime minister and president's home and kicking them out, uh, Johnson re re resigning, Israel having to call for new national elections. Um, it, that feeling of being unsettled is very prominent here in the U.S., and you can see it in our elections, you could see it in our media coverage, you could see it on social media. Um, do people in the UK feel that way? Yeah, I think inflation has really freaked people out, but also the proximity of the Ukraine war after the pandemic. It's like, where was the break? And I think that psychologically, but also just economically, is a real problem. And it is more psychological than economic because there's plenty of jobs um, and you know the world keeps turning. It's super expensive to fill up your car with gas and to pay your electricity bill and that's and and groceries. But I mean that is pretty common across the world at the moment. Um, I, I think it is, but um, you know I, I don't know if you. My obsession of the year is this book, The Journey of Humanity, which is not maybe the most compelling title, but by an Israeli-American historian called Oded Galor. And he writes about the underlying trends, economic trends in, in you know, the last 200,000 years. And it's like an incredibly reassuring book and that these are all blips and we get very distracted. We're, we're you know, th these are saber-toothed tigers about to attack us. And so, of course, we're focusing on them, but the underlying standards of living and the levels of child mortality and, and you know, like, you know, length of um, average lifespan around the world is going up and up and up. So I yeah. always feel like a little bit disinclined to get too distracted by the, the doom and gloom of, of, you know, you could pick any random date and say that all sorts of things are 
are going wrong, but um, I, I don't mean to be Pollyannish about it. But um, no, it, you're, you're right. The, the world is statistically better than it's ever been. Yeah. It feels feels worse maybe than it's ever <laughs> been. And it's a combination of, I mean, sort of they're both the result of capitalism, right? So on one hand, kind of capitalism has produced enough wealth yeah. to drive down poverty, drive up life expectancy, drive up literacy, drive down infant mortality, all of those really important factors. At the same time, it also created the internet and Twitter and social media yeah. and Fox yeah. News and all these things that not only you know lead us to fight with each other, but also kind of make what we don't have so readily apparent, right? You know, it, it, when you combine income inequality with sort of the massive awareness of like, here's yeah. who has, you know, here's who doesn't. And at least in the US, it's gotta be true in the UK too. You know, every advertisement is based on making you feel bad about yourself and you will only feel happy if you were to buy this cup or this, you know, uh, iPad or whatever it is. Um, all of that leads, at least in the US, to real feelings of dissatisfaction. Yeah, and the UK has the same economy, the same social media, basically. So I imagine it's, it's not that different. Yep, yep, exactly right. Uh, if, if the UK were still in the EU, would local perception of the Ukraine war be different? Would you feel would the Brits feel more engaged in it, or is it about the same? I'd say it's about the same. Um, I, I think there is a sort of weird, it's you know, slightly jingoistic patting on the back of like, look, we're giving the second largest amount of aid to Ukraine, and we're not in the EU. You know, therefore we were right to leave, or at least we can show how strong we are as an independent nation. But I, I don't think the response would have been that different. And in fact, what, what I think is concerning is the fragmenting of the European consensus over Ukraine. And I think that if Britain was still in, it would have a pretty significant say on that and would be pushing the the countries that are getting a little lukewarm about it toward to staying the course and and so i mean if you're not in the room you don't get to tell germany and france what to do um so i mean it's just one of a million head-holding <laughs> moments of of those those who did not support brexit um so yeah. And then, you know, it's it's interesting also for the relationship between England and Russia in that, you know, while Russian oligarchs are sort of, you know, automatically condemned, I do feel like there's some bit of either fascination or weird pride in England of like, look, we have all of these crazy billionaires who are building $100 million houses in Knightsbridge or Mayfair mm. and buying soccer teams. And, you know, it, if you truly hated them, they probably wouldn't get nearly as much attention as they actually do. Um how important are the Russian oligarchs to the London economy, to the London kind of perception? And if they all really do get driven out or, or killed in some way, what's the impact? I don't think it's going to have much of an impact economically. I do think it's going to have an impact socially. I mean, the Russians in particular have had a real presence here in, in the last two decades. And it's going to change the sort of the sort of very top level of of social fabric in the city. I mean, one of them, um, or the father-son combination, the Lebedevs, um, the younger one who is the owner of the Evening Standard and and the Independent, um, are coming under really serious scrutiny. And he's a member of the House of Lords, and um, and that is um, a, a gnarly. Um, and potentially problematic situation. And actually, one of the things that came out over the last few days was that 
Boris Johnson had um, met with the father who was in the KGB without anyone else present when he was foreign secretary. So, you know, that a little um, jumps back to certain moments of the Trump administration. Um, uh, you know, the, the, all the football teams here are owned by wealthy Americans or, or Qataris or Saudis in the case of Newcastle United. Um, that's not going to change. The, the, the money that floods into the UK is just going to keep flooding in, but perhaps not from Russia. Got it. Um, one of the things that I talk about a lot on this podcast, and, and I've been running and funding the campaign to do this in the US, is mobile voting. So the, mm. the thesis is, at least in the US, because every district is gerrymandered, which means that effectively it's already going to be one by one party or the other, depending on how the district is drawn. Um, the only elections that really matter are the primaries. And primary turnout in the U.S. is very, very low, typically 10 mm-hmm. to 20 percent. They tend to be the most sort of ideological voters with special interests. So as a result, all of the inputs given to our politicians is to be pure, stick with the base, don't work with the other side, don't compromise, because that 10, 15 percent on the far left and far right who actually show up to vote, that is how they feel, even if the 70 percent in the middle would like to see things get done. And so my argument has been, if people can vote on their phone, we can get primary turnout up from, say, 12% to 36%. That changes the input so that farm people in the middle are voting, and that makes it easier for politicians to then actually try to get things done without fear of losing office. Um, assuming my thesis is right, could be wrong, but assuming it's right, would that work and help in the UK, or does the parliamentary system really make it unnecessary? I think it would have a significant impact. I think in terms of tech up, uptake, I think it would be very broad. I mean, you know, we all remember when the idea of looking, sending an email on a phone was really alien, and now look where we are. So, And, and I think also that COVID passes, um, the NHS app here was downloaded, you know, almost universally. So I think the level of trust in the tech is high, and I don't think, and you know, again, we used to think of oh, buying something on the, in the on the internet is untrustworthy. Of course, that's absurd now. So I think that, I think that would be fine. That in terms of the kind of adoption, I, in terms of its political impact, I mean, general elections here have national elections have a turnout rate of sort of between. 65 and 68 percent. So there's a lot to play for and a lot of people not voting. And needless to say, they are generally either people who feel disenfranchised by the system and therefore probably lower income and therefore less likely to vote for the Conservative Party is the very crude analysis. So that could shake things shake things up, but it is also for a, a first past the post system, which means that it's phenomenally hard to break the grip on power of the two main parties, even if yeah. you know like neither of them have come close to fifty percent. I don't know in my lifetime if ever. I, I don't I don't have enough historical knowledge on whether that's ever happened. But it's disincentivizing. And you just think, well, what's the point in voting for the Green Party or the Liberal Democratic Party, who are the sort of a one point where they're, they're actually in coalition with the Conservatives in 2010. But that seems like a distant memory at this point. And so it's just Labour or the Conservatives. Throw in another, you know, 15%, let's say, of, out of the 30-something percent, and, and you know, it could be game-changing. It really could. And, and there have been attempts to have third parties here, really, you know, well-meaning, exciting attempt, attempts, but 
they've just died with it and died super yeah, fast. Same, same thing in the US. I, I think yeah. creating a viable third party is actually much harder than empowering the center to vote and changing the incentives yeah. and inputs for for politicians. Well, I'll just say this to the extent that anyone in the UK is listening. Um, we're going to be we're building our own mobile voting technology right now. Um, that is completely encrypted and secure end to end. We're going to be done hopefully by the end of Q1 of next year. Um, and my plan is to make it free to any government that wants it anywhere in the world. Um, and so if any British election official is hearing this and thinks it's a good idea, please reach out to us because we'd be happy to work with you. Um, I'm going to change topics now pretty radically to culture, right? Yeah, and, yeah. you know, I was... Um, Recently, my daughter had asked me for a, a book recommendation, and I recommended Utopia Avenue by David Mitchell, which is about kind of the, the music scene in London in the 1960s. Um, mm. When I was there the other week, you had Glastonbury and Paul McCartney was playing, and there were the Hyde yeah. Park concerts, and the Rolling Stones were playing. So on one hand, it's a lot. On the other hand, it all feels like it's 60 years old. Um, <laughs> What is kind of, you know, why is British culture not having that same kind of impact on the U.S. right now? And what are the musical acts, the authors, the things that people know and love in the U.K. that just isn't filtering over? Look, I think this I, I think this comes and goes, actually. I hear you on the 60 years ago, but like think about Duran Duran, Wham! And, and you know, there was the 80s thing and then there was, yeah. you know, briefly sort of Oasis and you know, Def Leppard came from Sheffield. And now, I mean, you still got like behemoths, they're really middle of the road behemoths like Adele and Coldplay who still making a Dua Lipa, you know, they're a billion, no, billion Irish American. Um, so I, I, I don't totally buy it. I think that the music industry is so fragmented that you kind of almost don't even notice whether they're British or not at this point. Um, so Dua Lipa could, easily be an American act. Um, I will stand up for my native Scotland, Bradley. There is a techno pop band called Churches and Churches uh, spelled with a V rather than a U. Um, and they are so great. Um, and they're pretty well, know, moderately well known in the States. I don't know, but um, they're not that well known here, but I saw them live recently and uh, they're just they're just a joy. Um, oh, so sorry, go ahead. I'll say the final question then around kind of UK culture. Um, I was over in, in Camden Market, which was fantastic. Yeah. I really really yeah. enjoyed it. There was an Amy Winehouse sculpture or statue. Yeah. Um, is did she? It sounds terrible, but did she die at the perfect time, or was she such a overwhelmingly talented musical force that if she were still alive today and making music, she'd still be a phenomenon? So, you know, I was listening the other day to an archival version of Desert Island Discs with George Michael, who is obviously no longer with us. And he, he, this was when she was still alive, but obviously very unwell. And he made the case at the time that she was the greatest talent, you know, on the planet. And I, 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 I missed it, to be honest. I think I was busy covering the war in Iraq or something. I missed Amy Winehouse at the time. And um, so I don't, I can't give you like a contemporary you know, assessment on that. I've seen the documentary, which is amazing, but I don't know. I think it, it's, it's that you could ask that about Kurt Cobain. I, I would say Kurt Cobain like right. did yeah. pretty amazing stuff in his three or four years. Um, she, I'm a little less sure. 
it's a good statue though. And she's she she went to a pub in Camden the whole time that everyone you know you've seen in the documentary. So that's just right in the corner from where the statue is. Yeah, no, the whole thing kind of fit really well. Um, so Matt, how do people uh, in the U.S. learn more about Intelligence Squared? How do they participate? Go to intelligencesquared.com. Um, you can take part in our live stream events and vote. And boy, people like voting. So to your point about technology yep. and voting, I mean, it's just really empowering. I mean, obviously, you can't reverse Brexit through an Intelligence Squared event, but you can kind of take part. It's like a brilliant intellectual hub game um but at a super high level and so join in then but we're on youtube we're on podcasts wherever you get your podcasts uh, the whole lot there you go matt McAlter, thanks for joining us thanks bradley it's been a pleasure 